According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, once again, we want to be in three different Gospels today. Uh, I think though primarily Mark will have the bulk of the things we're looking at. Uh, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And then Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. And there are details that are unique to each of these three Gospels, but I think uh, Mark gives us the fullest of the accounts. So we'll use that as a base text, and then we'll bring in the others uh, by way of comparison. We got a good start on this a week ago, and so this is our second uh, lesson in episode 33, Jesus Blesses Children. And uh, if we jump on it fast enough, this ought to be the final class in this. I say that, and we'll have six more, but uh, I think we can... We got uh, the twin imperatives that we got to look at. And uh, as we ran out of time last week, the idea of anger without sin. And we want to make sure that we're, we're clear on that as well. So, all right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, prepared to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth. And Father, asking for um, your blessing upon our time. Father, set aside distractions. Cleanse our minds. Uh, Father, we've got a lot of conflict going on and, and different things. Father, conflict without, fears within. Father, we just pray that, uh, that you would quiet our hearts at this time to uh, give us the understanding of the truth that you would have for us on this day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty. I think rather than try to skip ahead, let's just review what we did a week ago. Uh, you're familiar with the story. It's a pretty short story. Um, they were bringing little children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for, such, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Uh, I don't know if you recall or not, but in uh, 1 Corinthians, we spent quite a bit of time discussing such a one, right? Such a one. And such a one was the man of incest that was expelled from the church and then restored upon his repentance and so forth. Such a one typically, uh, you know, is uh, the object of discipline or church discipline or or what have you. Here we have the plurality of such a one uh, that is referred to as such a such as these. Okay. Or uh, Luke, even in his prayer on Sunday, uh, referenced such a many. He used such a many in his uh, in his prayer on Sunday. And I thought it was beautiful. It was, that's exactly what uh, we're looking at here. The such a many. Well, permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he began, or he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. All right. First of all, we understand the context for this event under point one. Children, even babies, were brought for hands-on prayer blessings. Children, even babies, were brought for hands-on prayer blessings. Uh, the term is children in both Matthew and Mark, but it is babies. It is the brephos, infant, newborn, in uh, the record uh, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 18:15, And they were brought for blessings, hands-on prayer blessings. And we discussed this a little bit last week. This is not infant baptism. This is not uh, anything uh, quirky or goofy, you understand. Uh, but the practice of blessing, fathers were to bless their children. And, and uh, the whole episode with Esau uh, and Jacob there where Jacob wanted the blessing before Isaac died. And, and what, what is conferred upon a child when the hands are laid on and the prayer is offered in terms of blessing. The whole Old Testament approach to blessing and cursing is a really a vital study, but we can at least limit it or we can approach it on a finite basis here today and recognize what it is as a prayer blessing. We are invoking the Father for the Father's provision, for the Father's guidance, for the Father's blessings in this person's life. We have 
followed traditions uh, here in this ministry for years. I haven't done one now for about three years. Uh, uh, infant dedications where we bring the parents up in front of the congregation on a Sunday morning and we hold the newborn. And uh, we're going to do that on our first Sunday over the new property, by the way, since we're so negligent and having not done one for some time now. Some of the, the children I'm going to be holding up there are going to be pretty hefty little guys, <laughs> good-sized folks. But anyway, um, yeah, we try to get them before they go off to college. Then yeah, at that point, it's just too, it's too awkward holding them, you know. But um, anyway, we bring the parents down front and we hold the children and we identify with the children. And the, the laying on of hands is significant for the standpoint of the identification that takes place. All right. And uh, so uh, we get to hold the babies and we pray not for doesn't confer anything spiritual, does not confirm salvation. The kids don't get saved. Uh, But we're asking for the parents, for God to be a blessing for these parents, for husbands and wives, fathers and mothers to uh, train up this uh, child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And it's a reminder for each of us sitting here in the church on a Sunday morning that these are. These are parents we need to be praying for. Here's a young marriage we need to be praying for. Here's an example we need to be setting. And these are parents trying to raise up their kids. We need to, to cooperate with that and, and not hinder that in, uh, in any way. So it's a wonderful practice. It's a custom that, uh, that we do in, in imitation of uh, episodes such as this one here. And uh, different aspects on that. Of course, we understand in our priesthood, we cannot uh, convey a blessing from our own soul. The blessings all come from the Father. Every spiritual blessing is in the heavenly places in Christ. But we can uh, request those or call upon the Father to extend those uh, on a prayer basis. And so I think we can. Uh, we don't have a dispensational issue that prevents us from uh, these practices or these customs, as we're told to not give a cursing, but give a blessing, return a blessing instead. Blessing is very much our capacity to do. All right. Every gospel record demonstrates the volition of the parents on behalf of their children in this activity. Uh, the parents were bringing their children. So the volitional actors involved are the parents. But we do have the parallel statements that the children are coming. All right. And so it would be wrong to hold to one and exclude the other. Both are true. It would be absolutely wrong to insist on one perspective and not admit both perspectives are true the parents are bringing their children to christ and because of that the children are coming to christ okay and and i just want to take the time to stress this not because this is a this is not an evangelism context but the expressions do come up in evangelism context and there are people who are uncomfortable with certain expressions such as coming to christ makes some people uncomfortable and they want to say, well, I don't come to Christ. Uh, he, he found me. Okay, Let's try to relax about it and recognize that both are true. Because it says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me, or sent me draws him. Okay, So both statements are true, but it's a matter of the perspective of, of what you're dealing with. So the Father draws, yes. The Holy Spirit convicts, yes. And when the Father draws and the Holy Spirit convicts, it is fair to say, we come to Christ. Okay. As many as believe him to them, they gave the right to become children of God. We have different aspects there of coming to Christ. So we don't have a, an issue with the language as long as we let it be clear from both perspectives of of uh, of the circumstances. All right. And so, again, this is uh, testified to by every gospel record, Matthew, Mark and Luke. The parallel account testifies on all three cases. Parents are bringing the verb is prospero. And uh, yet children were coming with uh, the verb erkamai. Okay. Thirdly, the disciples rebuked the parents for unstated reasons. The disciples rebuked the parents for unstated reasons. Uh, it's in Mark 19. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 19:13, Mark 10:13, and Luke 18:15. All three gospel records record to this. Uh, it says the disciples rebuked them, chewed them out. Now, we don't know why uh, the actual motivation for the rebuking is not clear because it's not stated. Um, and, and we could speculate, you know, what their attitudes were, but uh, the, the scripture doesn't tell us. And so the, the speculation is rather uh, useless at this point. Um, 
I think, though, that it is, serves as a warning that we need to be very cautious in our rebukes. There are places where rebukes are necessary, but we have to ask ourselves those two questions. First of all, is it necessary? And then secondly, even if it is necessary, am I the one that has been assigned uh, the rebuking responsibilities? In other words, is it my place? Or is it better or is it required that it actually comes from somebody else rather than from me? So it may be necessary, but it may not be my place to fulfill that activity. Okay, And I think here in the case of the disciples, they failed on both points. It, it was not necessary, but even if it was necessary, was it their role and, uh, and different things there? Well, clearly, we can speculate all we want, but Jesus uh, gives us the... <laughs> the final word on this, uh, the disciples are wrong. They should not have been rebuking these parents and uh, should not have been hindering the uh, the bringing of the children. And this is what he communicates. So, again, this is point three. The disciples rebuked the parents for unstated reasons, and Jesus became indignant for obvious reasons. <laughs> All right? I think it's pretty obvious why he's indignant. And... Uh, that uh, the exclusion of children is absolutely inappropriate when it's children and the faith of children that is the essence of what salvation even is. Uh, the presence of children and the and these childlike faith, the humility that these children or children in general, the humility of a child's faith is precisely, uh, there's no better place for children than in a fellowship of, of believers, in uh, the the well, what we would say today in the local church in the body of Christ. Okay, so not only is it inappropriate to exclude them, it is very appropriate to include them. They are a part of our body, part of our family, and uh, and so forth. Now I understand that we, of course, for on Sundays and and other occasions, we uh, create classes that are tailored and geared for their. Um, maturity level and their understanding and we have particular teaching that's focused for them but that's not to say that they're any less believers or they're any inferior there's no inferiority um, as far as that goes you understand that and and for other occasions for picnics and fellowships and all kinds of things for our our opening sunday at the new building we're not going to have sunday school on that opening sunday we're going to have everybody in the auditorium we're going to have everybody worshiping together celebrating together like we did when we turned the dirt that it is a corporate worship and and our children are a part of that so point 4 in the outline then uh or dealing with this indignance uh we did a study on the agonacteo uh, the related cognate anagnoctasis there, number 24. Uh, Strong's number 23, Strong's number 24, between the verb and the noun. We went through the uses there. And what we learned in terms of this kind of indignation, it's, it's not a bad term, I like it. Um, it is an anger term, but what difference is it from orge? Orge deals with wrath, de- uh, the wrath of God, the anger of God, the anger of man, the wrath of man. Orge uh, communicates Passion communicates a heat and the anger that comes because of the heat of passion. And, of course, that doesn't mean it has to be sinful. God is very passionate and very hot in what he does because of his character and his love, for example. So the wrath of God is never carnal, is never sinful. Um, and, and that this is not a wrath in terms of heat. This is an indignation, an anger in terms of a disapproval. Every single use we saw of it, we found that what was motive, what was behind this indignation was a disapproval. Somebody was doing something and you didn't like it. All right. Somebody was doing something and you didn't like what they were doing. And because you didn't like what they were doing, it angered you. Again, that often is a carnal motivation, but not always. With Christ, Christ became indignant. Was he sinning in this? No. Christ became indignant, but it was not sinning. So you can be disapproving what other people are doing. And disapproving what they're doing can cause you indignation. But it doesn't mean you're sinning. It doesn't mean you're carnal. If, in fact, you are like-minded with the Father and He's disagreeing with what you're doing, right? So uh, you have the resentment. It is an anger prompted by resentment. And, and a couple of readings out of the Church Fathers, I thought... Uh, further illustrated on top of all the New Testament references there, uh, illustrated that this is indeed the right understanding of 
the, uh, of the terminology. And of course, in the case of our Lord, we understand his indignation to be an anger without sin. His indignation is to be an anger without sin. All right. And this is where we ran out of time and we did not go through these verses. So let's uh, let's take the time. Am I correct? We did not go through these verses. Let's take the time and look at them then. Um, we're familiar with Ephesians 4.26. I know we looked at Psalms. We looked at Ephesians. We did not get through the remainder of these. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 7.26, 1 Peter 2.22, 1 John 3.5. This is probably overkill, but I don't mind it. Um, if I can equip you with as many verses as possible, then I'm giving you all the ammunition you need. And if you need a verse, you need a couple of verses, you need five verses, whatever you need. In some cases, having four, five, six verses is, is very helpful because it shows you a preponderance of the, of the Scripture testimony where God wants to make it very clear repeatedly over and over and over again, this is an important thing. It needs to be said. It needs to be said repeatedly. And since it is said repeatedly, then we can, uh, we ought to be pretty forceful in our, uh, in our description of that. So uh, let's go ahead and take these in order then. Uh, I think we're familiar with Ephesians, but let's go to Psalm 4.4, and then we'll hit these, uh, the rest of these on the screen. We want to make sure that we can uh, be imitators in this application, um, as in fact we're commanded to be. Um, Psalm 4, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. So what do we understand here in this Davidic Psalm right from the get-go? This is in a prayer mode. This is a believer who's wrestling with the Father in certain things that he's concerned about. Uh, the God of my righteousness, you have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. All right, so, so there's a problem. Something's bugging you. Something's maybe worse than bugging you. Maybe something's threatening your life, whatever it is. There's a problem and you have no soul stability because of that problem. Where are you going to go to get that soul stability? What are you going to do? How are you going to find relief for your stress, for your distress? You know, get drunk, <laughs> smoke something. Um, you know, find a woman or what are you going to do? How about you take it to prayer? How about you throw it before the father, cast all your burdens on him for he cares for you. Recognize what the soul stability is, the outcome of that. When, um, when you obey Philippians, when you are anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, making your request known. See, then he says, um, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Sounds like our day and age. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. So you've got a pagan world of darkness and you're trying to walk in the light. You're set apart and uh, these distresses are getting to you. So what are you going to do? Take it to the Lord. Tremble and do not sin. Now, tremble there is is the anger concept that ties into what we're studying with the New Testament Greek vocabulary here in the Hebrew Old Testament, we have it's translated tremble. But here we have the anger. What's causing you to tremble? It could be anger, could be resentment, could be um, just simply uh, you've lost heart. You're uh, you're beside yourself. Tremble. And do not sin like in Ephesians 426. All right. Where it says be angry, yet do not sin. Tremble and do not sin. I think it's the wrong approach to just simply say, well, don't get mad. Don't ever get mad. The Bible doesn't say don't get mad. It says get mad, but don't sin. Okay? Tremble, but do not sin. Be angry, yet do not sin. Understand that be angry is an imperative. Be angry. You ought to be angry. God's angry. If you're not angry, why not? In the right perspective. Okay? When I see... Wickedness abounding, does that anger me? You bet it angers me, because it angers God. So tremble and yet do not sin. And notice now, meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Why is it that uh, the, the primary technique in the faith rest drill, <laughs> right? I mean, how many years ago did you learn this doctrine? You pray it over. You meditate on the truth. You cycle the doctrine that you have stored away in your soul. And you, you voice it back to the Lord. And you can do this 24 hours a day. Meditate in your heart upon your bed. Now, why is that important? Because the thing is, you don't want to carry it over from one day to the next. So spend, you know, go to bed, trembling, 
but praying over it and then be still and see the grace of the Father in action when uh, when you've cast your burdens on him, when, when you're... Uh, in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will what? It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't try to let it fester from one day to the next. Each day has enough evil on its own. All right? So reach this point of inner happiness, of mental attitude peace, of relaxed mental attitude, to close out every single day. Now, tomorrow, the provocation may arise one more time. That's fine. But let it be a new provocation the next day and don't let it just carry over from yesterday, the day before, the day before. Sometimes I think we just chew on stuff for weeks and it's just poison to the bones. So here it is. All right, that's that's Psalm 4.4. And of course, I think this forms the wonderful backdrop to Ephesians 4. And uh, understanding, too, in the verse 26 does not appear in a uh, in a vacuum. It's not just its own chapter all by itself. It actually sits inside a context of a larger development that is chapter four. That is the uh, the believer's walk. And you'll notice that this is the the newness of life that we have. We're not walking in the darkness of their of understanding. Um, calloused, uh, given themselves over to sensuality and all of this. That's the walk of darkness. Okay, That's the walk that unbelievers engage in all day, every day. That's the walk believers engage in when they return to their vomit and uh, in prolonged carnality go back to that futile, uh, the futility of their mind. But you do not learn Christ in this way. You do not learn Christ. This chapter is about learning Christ. The Christian walk, uh, you have a new nature, you have a new heart, but don't think that you can just simply instinctively uh, figure your way out through the Christian way of life. It takes study. It takes learning. See, and you want to be able to foster that and train that and shape that, uh, that new nature that God gives you. So learning Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and been taught in Him, the truth is in Jesus. And so in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. You lay it aside. Now, that's your former manner of life, but you still daily, in time, have to lay that aside or it'll, you'll go back to that vomit again. Notice, you lay aside the old self, which, notice, is being corrupted, present tense. That ongoing corruption is still present tense activity. That's why the working out of your salvation with fear and trembling is it's a constant struggle, the battle of your volition, the battle of your soul. You know, you can't just assume they say, well, hey, I'm saved now, so my past is gone, and now I'm a new creature in Christ, and I'm never going to have that filth again. No. It still is there until you're rescued, saved, delivered out of the body of this death. And so um, this uh, corruption is ongoing, and that's why we have to daily, continuously lay aside that old self. And you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Again, that's Bible study. That's in the Word of God. Combine that with Romans 12 too. And put on the new self. Put on the new self continuously today, tomorrow, every day. Putting on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in the righteousness and holiness of truth. So this is the, this is the walk in the newness of life. This is our Christian way of life. This is us. And we're not alone in this. We have brothers and sisters together. Laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. We are members one of another. Okay? And, and I'm taking the time to walk us through this total context because this is where be angry yet do not sin comes in. Be angry. What's the context for be angry yet do not sin? Is it while you're looking at the unbelievers? While you're watching Fox News? While you're seeing politics? This is not an anger about politics. It's not an anger about current events. It's not an anger about national uh, apostasy. This is an anger in the context of what? Speaking truth, each one of you with his neighbor. We are members of one another. This is how, I mean, this is the anger that can be sparked between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the, the anger that can come between a husband and a wife in marriage. An anger that can come between a father and a son in, uh, in this. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
And here again, this is this is identical to what we just were talking about in Psalm four. Make sure that at the end of the day, you have the uh, we used to have COB close of business. That was our Army TLA. We always had these <laughs> three-letter acronyms, um, including TLA. Uh, so you have this COB close of business, right? Close of business, close of business. Every day had a close of business, and just consider, okay, close of business. Today my spirit was provoked. It was provoked by whatever, whatever. All right. Don't allow that to venture into the realm of mental attitude sin. Give it to the Father in prayer. It belongs to Him anyway. Whatever the offense was, wasn't against you. It was not, you're not the one with the eternal absolute standard of righteousness. All right. And you didn't hang your son on a cross to pay for it. God the Father did. And so each day I just offer it up as a sweet smelling savor and say, Father... I'm walking with you in this provocation. I'm walking with you in this anger. But I also want to walk with you in the mental attitude that's not going to cross into carnality there. And uh, and give it to him. Do not let the sun go down on it. Why? You'll notice here in Ephesians we have an expansion, more detail than was in Psalms. And not surprisingly, it's angelic conflict over uh, oriented. It says, do not give the devil an opportunity. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Here's the problem. When you allow your anger to cross the line into carnality, then what have you just done? You just made yourself vulnerable. And when you dwell on it day after day after day, you're just further weakening your own spiritual condition. And the devil just eats that up. Do not give the devil an opportunity. So this whole idea of being angry yet without sinning, is it possible? Yes, it's possible. We have the example of Christ. Christ was angry. He was, he was indignant with the disciples. He said, Stop hindering them. He said, stop preventing them. And uh, he has two imperatives. The first one says, permit them. The second one says, do not ever again hinder them. There's an aorist and a present imperative here back to back. But Christ was indignant. He was angry, but he wasn't sinning. So it is possible to have this kind of anger without sinning. I think when he made the, the scourge of, of cords and threw over tables and drew them out of the, you know, threw them out of the temple, he was, he was furious. But he wasn't carnal. We need to understand that. All right. Now, here's a whole train of scriptures for you to use. This is the one, two, three, four, five. Um, you got five uh, bullets in your six shooter here. Uh, ammunition that you can use uh, if you want. Uh, and here's to me, this is this is just glorious because people are so weird about what they think Jesus was or who they think Jesus was. And they don't understand that he was God in the flesh. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was the righteous one and uh, without sin. So let's look at all these verses. You probably know them all anyway. Second Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin. He knew no sin. This right here tells us he's the unique human being in the history of the world. Him who knew no sin. To be sin... On our behalf, he made him sin. God made him sin. He became the sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, the sin that was ours, he had no recognition of, no partaking of, no knowledge of, and yet it was imputed to him. God's righteousness, which we have none of, no background of, no exposure to, no knowledge of, God imputes that to us. You see how the, the two directions on that work? Christ knew no sin. We knew no righteousness. But God gave Him all of our unrighteousness and gave, gave us all of His righteousness. It's an amazing pattern. Him who knew no sin. Don't, don't let it stand if someone tells you, well, you know, He was a good man. He was a moral teacher. Sinless. The only sinless human ever in the history of mankind. Hebrews 4.15 and Hebrews 7.26. book of Hebrews fully develops out why it is that the Old Testament sacrifices had to be without spot or blemish. They were the foreshadowing. They were the picture of what the reality was, which was Christ without sin. It's interesting. It says... Um, Therefore, in verse 14, since we have a, high, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. 
Do those double negatives confuse you? Okay. The Greeks love double negatives and, and different things, but we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Yet without sin. So whatever it is that's provoking you, he faced it. He faced it. Okay? And this is where you can't get away with saying, well, he never, he never uh, faced traffic on 183. Okay? True. But he faced everything we face. He faced temptations for the realm of impatience in the realm of pride all right you know why why am i impatient anyway why am i so prideful anyway did the guy cut me off well why was i entitled to it <laughs> you know do i own the road is that my lane you know why why do i get offended and impatient and angry so he was tempted in all things, even as we are. And, and uh, somebody asked me the other day, too, I said, well, you know, he was never married. So how, how is it fair to say that he, he faced marital testing? Okay. And I think we need to recognize what testing is. Let's not confuse what testing is. I think sometimes we confuse the venue for the testing. Marriage is the venue in which certain things are tested. That's not to say that I have to be in every venue to be tested in all things. And so we, we understand the truthfulness of this, uh, of this statement. Let's not confuse the venue in, the, in which things get tested with the testing itself. All right. One who is tested even as we are, tempted as we are, yet without sin the sinless perfect savior who as the sinless perfect savior was qualified to be our substitute uh still in hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 for it was fitting for us to have uh, such a high priest holy innocent undefiled separated from sinners exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Well, guess what? He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't need to offer up a sin for himself. He's already eternally perfectly qualified. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The once and for all sacrifice on Jesus Christ. The infinite sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 2.22 Verse 21 says, You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Isn't that interesting? You can't, of course, you can't follow what He did on the cross. But you can follow what He did leading up to the cross. And you have your own cross you're commanded to carry. So follow that example. And you say, well, I don't like to suffer. It's not about what you like or what you don't like or what you want or what you don't want. But are you going to be faithful through the suffering so that you reach the purpose of why the Father has put you through that suffering? Again, we see it's purpose-driven here in verse 21. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. How are you mistreated? How do you respond? Better be Christ-like as this pattern, as this verse here gives us. Are you going to revile in return? Are you going to utter threats? Are you going to respond with your own, uh, you know, get your own peace in there or uh, you keep entrusting yourself to the righteous judge first john 3 5 the last passage here that talks about his sinless perfection and i like the way each of these and talking about a sinless perfection is also pointing out that you know he he didn't have an easy life it wasn't as if he wasn't hammered with angelic conflict on every side 
Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. There's a development here that actually distinguishes between sin and lawlessness, the the, uh, actions and the sphere. Um, There's other things that go into that. We're going to be here, by the way, tonight when we evaluate the when he appears, we will be like him because we will we will see him as he is there in verse two. And what does it mean to see him as he is? What does it mean when we're absent from the body and at home with the Lord and we see him as he is? Uh, and what body then does he clothe us with uh, while we're in heaven awaiting the uh, trumpet in the rapture event? So uh, stay tuned for more detail on this chapter. But it says, uh, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Wonderful contrast again. First John's great for this. Sins plural are the personal sins, the actions, the deeds. Uh, sin singular is the estate, the, the old man, the sinful nature, the, the, um, the fallen estate in Adam. No one who abides in him sins. So what does that mean? When you do sin, what does that mean? That means that prior to your sin, you quit abiding in Him. You quit abiding in His Word. You quit uh, surrendering yourself to the Holy Spirit. You started listening to the impulses of the flesh. Every sin I've ever committed came because I stopped abiding in Christ. I started uh, listening to the Holy Spirit or to the uh, sin nature, and I obeyed the sin nature. But I didn't have to. You didn't have to. None of us have to. If you're abiding in Him, you're not going to sin. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's guaranteed. All right. Well, here's the uh, the last issue there. All right, the twin imperative, point five then. Jesus issues His disciples a twin imperative. The first one's an aorist imperative. The second one's a uh, present active imperative. First of all, He says, permit them. And then he says, stop hindering them, or do not hinder them. Permit them, do not hinder them. And we take the two to be um, repetitive, and yet um, important to recognize. The, the first one, just permit them, means these guys right here, right now, this time. This group right here. Uh, but then stop hindering them or do not hinder them means the next time, the next time, never again. Or even different kids or another venues or other uh, occasions. So he's basically saying, permit them now and every other time in the future. Don't ever do this again. All right. He changes imperatives, but that's not... As critical, the, the permit them is the aorist active imperative of Aphiemi, A P H I E M I, number eight sixty three, and um, that's a that's a releasing term. It's a divorce term. Um, it'd be a pretty poor translation if you looked at this verse and said divorce them. No, we wouldn't really translate it that way. But it is a a release. It is a release. In other words, release them. Whatever they, they were doing and holding them back, restraining them, you know, tying them down, you know, different techniques for child evangelism or child ministry. <laughs> All right. Release them. Permit them. Don't hold them back. And that's an aorist imperative. So that's timeless point of time right here, right now. Just permit them. But then he adds to it and he says, do not hinder them. Stop hindering them. You have may plus the present active imperative of koluo. Koluo. K-O-L-U-O. Koluo. They're the long omegas in both. Both of the O's are the long omegas. Koluo. Number 2967. And there are 23 uses of koluo. And these are rather interesting. Um. The idea of hindrances. What do we do that cause hindrances? What do we do that... And not just stumbling blocks. I think we've had doctrines on stumbling blocks before. We know we don't want to be stumbling blocks. But even the idea of a hindrance. You know, even if... uh, Maybe I haven't caused a total stumble. But what if I've just kind of, you know, kind of hindered a little bit? Is that acceptable? No. (laughs) Not at all. 
So 2967 is the strongest number on Kolua. But again, I would stress the aorist imperative, the present imperative, what we have here is the, the right now command and then also the ongoing permanent from this point forward command. Do not hinder them ever again. Stop this time and don't do it ever again. So this becomes now the official uh, open door policy that Jesus has. Any, any children that want to come to Christ immediately bring them don't don't hinder them the reason why is because such is the kingdom of heaven and there's a point that has to be made very important point that has to be made all right we have uh the scripture for koluo 23 uses here they are matthew 19 14 that's the text parallel to the one we're looking at uh mark 9 uh, verses uh, 38 and 39, Mark 10:14, where we are today. Luke 6:29, Luke 9:49 and 50, Luke 11:52, 18:16. That's our passage today. Luke 23:2. You notice Luke has a preference for this verb more so than Matthew or Mark. Um, not only does he have all these references in Luke, but then in the book of Acts, 8, 36, 10, 47, 11, 17, 16, 6, 24, 23, 27, 43. So it says a favorite term for, uh, for Luke. Uh, Romans 1, 13, 1 Corinthians 14, 39, 1 Thessalonians 2, 16, 1 Timothy 4, 3, Hebrews 7, 23, 2 Peter 2, 16, 3 John and verse 10. In all of these cases, we're going to notice a trend if you work your way through them, the idea of hindering. You really want to ask yourself, what is being hindered, who's hindering, and why? And ask yourself, if you are an agent in a hindering process, then who are you cooperating with? <laughs> are you a fellow worker with God the Father? In which case, there's something that the Father is restraining, and so you're a... Uh, a, a uh, agent on his behalf, a tool in his hand, or, much more commonly, uh, Satan is the adversary. Satan is the one who is seeking to hinder. And the implements that he uses, the, the useful idiots that he uses, the dupes, uh, become agents uh, on his behalf. And, and that's, that's worth, uh, worth looking at. All right, let's skip over Matthew and Mark and let's just go to the Luke uses. Luke and Acts and then see the Pauline cases there. Um, and, and this should go pretty fast. I think we all understand what a hindrance is, right? Well, let's just see how the Scripture uses it. Because uh, he orders them, don't ever hinder them. Don't ever hinder them. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not hinder him. Don't withhold your shirt from him either. Interesting use right here, right off the bat. We understand in the in the uh, Sermon on the Mount here what Christ was teaching his disciples regarding mistreatment in the kingdom. So there's uh, the first use in Luke. Mar uh, Luke 9, verses 49 and 50. Now this is parallel to the Mark 9, 38 and 39. So uh, we don't need to read both places. That's why I was pretty confident skipping over Matthew and Mark there. In Luke 9... Verses 49 and 50. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him. For he who does not against you is for you. Here's a, another do not hinder imperative, and it's one that we can make direct application of. We need to, to uh, be a little bit more relaxed regarding ministries that, uh, uh, that are going on. If it's not our flock, it's not our business. Why are we ju uh, judging? Why are we condemning? Why are we not our realm? Christ will deal with that. He's the head of the church. But they were all worked up over. Well, he's casting out demons. He's, he doesn't follow along with us. He's not part of our denomination. He's not a part of our circles. He's not uh, approved by our... Man, relax. Back off. They're, serving, they're casting out demons. Isn't that a glorious thing? Praise God. <laughs> you know? If, I was, if, if Christ was as sarcastic as me, he'd have come right back at him and said, Well, why didn't you cast him out? Well, you know, what were you doing? Goofing off while they were busy serving serving God. Uh, Luke eleven fifty two. 
Woe to you lawyers, you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. See, they're so caught up in their religion, and they're not getting saved, and they're actually an obstacle to other folks getting saved. And again, that's part of the hindrances where we're tools, implements in the hands of the adversary. We've got to guard against that. We've got to guard against that. If we're, if we're trying to put the brakes on something, we've got to ask ourselves, who are we serving and why? Don't get me wrong. There's times we've got to put the brakes on something. We've just got to be clear of why we're doing it and who we're serving. So that's Luke 11.52. Uh, we've already seen Luke 18.16 from the Mark record. Luke 23.2. They began to accuse him, saying, um, this is Christ's trial before Pilate. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so that forbidding, hindering, he wasn't doing that, but they, that's what they accused him of doing. Um, so those are the ones from Luke. Acts, same author, different book. Acts 8.36. Uh, and I love this one. This is uh, this is a great, great passage here. They went along the road. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, "Look, water! What hinders me? What prevents me from being baptized?" It's a great passage. I love that passage. What hinders me? What prevents me? Look, and this there's a whole realm of doctrine. I think this verse opens up when we understand our liberties in Christ and the provision of what God makes for us. And you see opportunity that's just laying there. You say, wow, is there anything that would stop me from redeeming this? What hinders me from... It's a wonderful testimony of the freedom we have in Christ. Man, if, if you're there and you're motivated and it's, it's open and it's a door, what hinders you? See, I think in a lot of applications, uh, nothing hinders you. Is this an open door? God, God laid it right there. 1047. Acts 1047. Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And here's, uh, you know, the Jews are catching on to the fact there's Gentiles getting saved and Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit. And this is a whole new church age. And uh, are we going to refuse them to be baptized? Are we going to hinder them from being baptized? And, and this, again, this is, the, this is exactly voicing, explicitly voicing the comments I was making a few minutes ago. We need to stop and ask ourselves, if we're going to hinder something, are we cooperating with the Father? Are we cooperating with the adversary? Because God's given them the Holy Spirit and they're getting saved and they're being ushered into the church. So if we hinder their baptism, their public testimony and, and uh, identification with the body of Christ, who are we cooperating with when we're doing this? 11.17 Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift He gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? You know, are you going to hinder what God's doing? Then you're working on the wrong side. All right. Same principle we just were looking at in chapter 10. 16.6. 16.6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. God may hinder you, and if he does, praise him for it. Praise him for it. Thank you, Father, for hindering me. I don't want to go through a door that's not my door. I want to be obedient to where you have for me to go. 24-23. Acts 24-23. I think we're catching on. and we got the, the concept here. Hindering children. About the worst thing you can hinder. So if you cause them to stumble, then just chunk yourself into the sea. 24:23. He gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So here's the uh, house arrest that uh, Paul is under and yet um, he's not going to be hindered from having uh, his companions, his friends, from coming in and ministering to him. So there's a friendly uh, jail arrangement. 27:43. The centurion, wanting to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention. In other words, he hindered them from their intention. Commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and, uh, and get to land. See, this is when they were on the verge of shipwreck and they were going to kill the soldiers or kill the prisoners. 
so that none of them could escape. And uh, God had a centurion right on hand to restrain that, to hinder that. All right, the rest of these, I think, yeah, Romans 1.13, he was hindered from going to Rome on multiple occasions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.39, um, there's a hindrance there, I think, regarding the prophetic gift. Let me see. Yeah, Romans 1.13 is where he'd been hindered from coming to Rome on several occasions. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak in tongues. That, of course, is during the apostolic age. 1 Thessalonians 2.16. 1 Timothy 4.3. These are the Pauline uses for this. You'll start to see more church application on this. These are the enemies and the adversaries. They're not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. So when you notice the crowd that's not supportive of your ministry opportunities, understand who they're serving and why they're doing it. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be folks who don't want you teaching the truth. False teachers in 1 Timothy 4, men who forbid marriage. They restrain, restrict marriage, hinder marriage. Advocate abstaining from foods which God has created be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. In a lot of ways, they hinder Christian liberty. You've got liberty and they hinder it. Why? Because they're not serving our Father, the Father of liberty. Hebrews 7.23, 2 Peter 2.16, 3 John verse 10. I think in our shortness of time we won't, we won't do that. Point three then. Point three. Point six. He says, The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It's called the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. It's called the kingdom of God in, in Mark and Luke. This is a context in which we see quite clearly that the terms are interchangeable. And there are many contexts where the terms are interchangeable, such as here. Uh, we don't want to... Uh, there are other contexts, though, where you cannot interchange the terms. And so it becomes a, really a vital study to understand in your eschatology, to understand in your Israelology, ecclesiology, to distinguish between Israel and the church. When is it appropriate to think of them as synonymous? And when is it appropriate that they must be distinct? And um, that becomes uh, an interesting study. All right. But it belongs to such as these. And it's the plural of, of uh, the such a one that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 5 and 11, or 1 Corinthians 7, 28. The such a one. And here's the such as these. Okay. The such a many. And uh, there's really um, a lot of doctrine that can go into such a one. Uh, it, it's a neat pattern because anytime you have such a one that's mentioned, that means it's not a particular imperative it's universal restore such a one galatians 6 1 brethren if anyone has been caught in any trespass you who are a spiritual restore such a one so what is our attitude in forgiveness and restoration it's not limited to particular believers and particular sins it's any believer in any sin restore such a one you understand that such a one and the context determines that of what is being dealt with in terms of such a one. In this context, what's being dealt with? Children. So how do we understand such a ones of children? All children. Every child. It's a universal expectation. Any children that are positive. Any children that have an interest. Any children that want to come to Jesus. Bring them. The disciples can fulfill that literally. We can fulfill that evangelistically. Any children you encounter that you want to come to Jesus... Or any parents you encounter that want to bring their children to Jesus. Bring them. You understand? And, and you see EF volunteers, you know this. There are a ton of parents out there that are clueless. They are not saved. They don't have any spiritual background. But now all of a sudden they find they've got a baby. Maybe they're not even married, but they got a baby. And there's something inside of them, who knows what and who knows why, but there's something inside of them that says, you know, we've got to raise this baby. Maybe, maybe we ought to 
get them to some kind of church thing. Maybe we ought to get them to a, a Bible thing or a Sunday school or what. You know, we got to all of a sudden they've never been spiritually minded in their life. But now they got a baby. Now they got a child. Now they, they say there's something in them that says, you know what? Probably ought to get them to, to some kind of a church. All right. Oh, howdy. Let me tell you. Bring them. Don't hinder them. Bring them. Invite them. Bring them to class. Put them in Sunday school. Get their parents in Bible class. Say, well, they're not, they're not married. Bring them. They're not saved. Bring them. <laughs> All right? The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Who knows? These kids have the humility to get saved first, and maybe through them now we'll have a door to get to the parents. I mean, has not, is that always the, the goal and the ideal and the blessings of, of uh, ministry with, with CEF and other related things? You know, that's how my dad got saved. Neighborhood lady said, hey, can I take your little boy to Sunday school? And his parents had no interest in anything like that, but figured, well, you know, couldn't hurt. Go ahead. He was five years old. Her name was Mrs. Roth. And she took him to Sunday school and from the time he was five to when he left home to go to college. And she even warned him when he was going off to college that, that was a, that's a Nazarene school and they may, they may tell you you can lose your salvation. Be very careful there. You know, she made sure he was grounded in his Calvinism, that you're eternal security and you can't get... And she was from kindergarten to college. Look forward to meeting her someday. All right. In heaven, of course. He was in heaven before I was on earth, but... Um, all right. Anyway, uh, we don't need to go through all those. The, the uses of toyutas are are uh, pretty standard, but you understand that it means that it's a universal imperative uh, expectation, not just on a limited basis, but any time that this condition repeats itself, any time that this circumstance repeats itself. This is a general expectation. All right. Childlike faith is required for salvation. Point seven, childlike faith is required for salvation. I think we make it too complicated sometimes. Such is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And this actually, there had been an earlier message that he gave in Matthew 18 that came prior to Matthew 19, which is the parallel here in our lesson today. This is the, the millstone episode. But this is where he says... Um, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child, see, and understand that the faith requires the humility. And so this childlike faith is as simple as it is. Matthew 18, verses 3 through 6. We've also got Psalm 131 and Psalm 22, 9. I think uh, i got two minutes I started talking faster about three minutes ago and I saw how close we were. Psalm 131. The whole psalm. We're going to read an entire psalm. That's all right. It's a three-verse psalm. Psalm 131. Childlike trust in the Lord. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters. Or in things too difficult for me. Oh, I love that verse. Can we just relax? Focus on where we are and what He wants from us. Are there great matters? There probably are, but that's not my realm. <laughs> Alright? Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. I mean, the most peaceful thing you've ever seen is a little infant that just finished nursing, that's just full, satisfied, happy, content, trusting, uh, just sleeping right there on, on mother's breast. What a, what a peaceful little picture. Nothing on this earth is more peaceful than that. And uh, that's what we're supposed to be. Childlike faith. Childlike faith. You know, does that, uh, does that child have any idea what Friday's uh, unemployment numbers are going to be like or where the uh, where the recession's heading or, or uh, what's happening in the foreign affairs? Is that child worried about the uh, <clears throat> the national leaders cursing Israel like we did last night? That child is just 
resting on mother's breast. Hmm. You know, this is uh, David's testimony. This was Jesus' testimony. Psalm 22.9. He's hanging on the cross. But he knows who he's going to trust. And he's going to trust in the same God that he's trusted in his entire life. He's surrounded. He's on the cross. God has forsaken him. I'm a worm and not a man. All who see me sneer at me. And yet... Yet, verse 9, yet, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast forth from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Childlike faith. What a pattern. Stop hindering these children. Childlike faith required for salvation. All right, next week, rich young ruler. Rich young ruler, and then we have the 11th hour laborers, then we have uh, Jesus foretelling death and resurrection, then the ambition of James and John. A lot of good things coming up. We're rapidly approaching the end of the Judean and Prean ministry. We're headed for the triumphal entry. We're headed for the Passion Week. It is, uh, it is coming up. Thank you, Father, for your truth, for your grace, for your mercy. We've got a lot to learn, and you fed us just a little bit more here today. So let us add this to what... You've taught us before. Let us digest it, chew on it, consume it, live it. Father, uh, open our eyes to see where the applications can come on a daily basis. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.